Where do the robbers, lovers, frauds, and secretaries all wind up? P.G. Woodhouse, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to all of our listeners and supporting members who help to keep us going. At this time of quarantine and adjustment, your help really goes a long way. I hope everyone is keeping safe and well. I also hope that you're taking advantage of the titles available for free during the pandemic. Please visit classictalesaudiobooks.com and go to the Home From School Free category to download a selection of titles for all ages, including adventure, mysteries, classic romance, and fantasy. I'll be adjusting the name of the category soon to Pandemic Titles, since the pandemic is still going strong, but we are winding down the school year. With that being said, feel free to pick up the free audiobooks even if you are not in school, have no kids, or just need something to help you get through the day. If listening to a solid story can help you out, please be our guest. And thanks again to our financial contributors. It is the monthly and bulk subscriptions that are largely keeping us afloat right now, as we are giving a lot of stuff away. Thank you for helping us to stay strong, and hopefully help to lighten the load of those who are hit particularly hard right now. This isn't going to last forever. We're going to get through this, and the more we can help each other out, the better. Thank you. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. And as I mentioned last week, The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius is on hold right now. It was a great adventure, but we're moving on, and we'll now be featuring a classic poem in the Special Features area of the Classic Tales app. We're starting with ballads, which are basically anonymous storytelling songs. And again, I need to correct myself for saying that last week's poem was written by Sir Patrick Spens. Nope. Wrong. Sir Patrick Spens is the name of this week's poem, about a ship that wrecks at sea. Both last week's and this week's poems are anonymous. Sorry about that. Now for our personal moment. Goldie is doing a singing contest in her school. It's called Centennial Idol, because she goes to Centennial Middle School. Seven did the contest five years ago. Now they are having the kids film themselves singing their songs at home, and the students vote remotely. Raising kids, it's like the best thing that, I can, that I've run across ever, when your children start to come into their own talents, and they start really showing who they've who they really are and who they will be. Um, Seven, when he was little, he really struggled in school. He did his own thing. And then when he told us five years ago he's going to try out for this singing contest, we were like, we just didn't know what to expect. He had never done any acting or singing or anything before. And when he came down and everyone was cheering for him, that was just an incredible, incredible moment for him and for me, for Priscilla, everybody. It was one of the greatest moments to see him come into his own and do the thing he was just, he was born to do it. 
And he went on to just really, really just, he's just such a great actor. I'm so excited to see that. And now to see Goldie doing it and, and Basil, of course, is doing it as well. It's, that's for me the best, the best part of parenting and raising kids. It's when they get to a point where you can just see who they're going to be. And it's, it's just, I love it. I just, just love it. So that was a really personal moment. But we can't talk about audiobooks all the time, right? Sure. And now, leave it to Smith. The P is Silent, Part 10 of 10, by P.G. Woodhouse. Hands up, said Mr. Coots, with the uncouth curtness of one who has not had the advantages of a refined home and a nice upbringing. He advanced warily, preceded by the revolver. It was a dainty miniature weapon, such as might have been the property of some gentle lady. Mr. Coots had, in fact, borrowed it from Miss Peavy, who at this juncture entered the room in a black and silver dinner-dress, surmounted by a rose de berry wrap, her spiritual face glowing softly in the subdued light. a boy, Ed,' observed Miss Peavy crisply. She swooped on the table and gathered up the necklace. Mr. Coots, though probably gratified by the tribute, made no acknowledgment of it, but continued to direct an austere gaze at Eve and Smith. "'No funny business,' he advised. "'I would be the last person,' said Smith agreeably, "'to advocate anything of the sort. "'This,' he said to Eve, "'is Comrade Coots, of whom you have heard so much.' Eve was staring, bewildered, at the poetess, who, satisfied with the manner in which the preliminaries had been conducted, had begun looking about her with idle curiosity. "'Miss Peavy?' cried Eve. "'Of all the events of this eventful night, the appearance of Lady Constance's emotional friend in the role of criminal was the most disconcerting. "'Miss Peavy!' "'Hello?' "'responded that lady, agreeably. "'I... I... "'What I think Miss Halliday is trying to say,' cut in Smith, "'is that she is finding it a little difficult to adjust her mind to the present development. "'I, too, must confess myself somewhat at a loss. "'I knew, of course, that Comrade Coots had, shall I say, an acquisitive streak in him. "'But you I had always supposed to be one hundred percent soul and snowy white at that.' "'Yeah?' said Miss Peavy, but faintly interested. "'I imagined that you were a poetess.' "'So I am a poetess,' retorted Miss Peavy hotly. "'Just you start joshing in my poems and see how quick I'll bean you with a brick. "'Well, I had no sense in sticking around here. Let's go. "'We'll have to tie these birds up,' said Mr. Coots. "'Otherwise we'll have them squealing before I can make a getaway.' "'Ed,' said Miss Peavy, with the scorn which her colleague so often excited in her, try to remember sometimes that that thing balanced on your collar is a head, not a Hubbard squash, and be careful what you're doing with that gat, waving it about like it was a bouquet or something. How are they going to squeal? They can't say a thing without telling everyone they snitched the stuff first. That's right, admitted Mr. Coots. Well, then, don't come butting in. The silence into which this rebuke plunged Mr. Coots gave Smith the opportunity to resume speech, an opportunity of which he was glad, 
for while he had nothing of definitely vital import to say, he was optimist enough to feel that his only hope of recovering the necklace was to keep the conversation going on the chance of something turning up. Affable though his manner was, he had never lost sight of the fact that one leap would take him across the space of floor separating him from Mr. Coots. At present, that small but effective revolver precluded anything in the nature of leaps, however short. But if in the near future anything occurred to divert his adversary's vigilance even momentarily, he pursued a policy of watchful waiting, and in the meantime started to talk again. "'If before you go,' he said, "'you can spare us a moment of your valuable time, I should be glad of a few words.' And first may I say that I cordially agree with your condemnation of Comrade Coots's recent suggestion. The man is an ass. Say, cried Mr. Coots, coming to life again, that'll be about all from you. If there wasn't ladies present, I'd bust you one. Ed, said Miss Peavy, with quiet authority, shut your trap. Mr. Coots subsided once more. Smith gazed at him through his monocle, interested. "'Pardon me,' he said. "'But, if it is not a rude question, "'are you two married, eh? "'You seem to me to talk to him like a wife. "'Am I addressing Mrs. Coots? "'You will be if you stick around a while. "'A thousand congratulations to Comrade Coots. "'Not quite so many to you, possibly, "'but fully that number of good wishes.' "'He moved towards the poetess with extended hand. "'I am thinking of getting married myself shortly.' "'Keep those hands up,' said Mr. Coots. "'Surely,' said Smith reproachfully, "'these conventions need not be observed among friends. "'You will find the only revolver I have ever possessed over there on the mantelpiece. "'Go and look at it.' "'Yes, and have you jumping on my back the moment I took my eyes off you?' "'There is a suspicious vein in your nature, Comrade Coots,' sighed Smith, "'which I do not like to see. Fight against it.' He turned to Miss Peavy once more. To resume a pleasanter topic, you will let me know where to send the plated fish slice, won't you? Huh? said the lady. I was hoping, proceeded Smith, if you do not think it a liberty on the part of one who has known you but a short time, to be allowed to send you a small wedding present in due season. And one of these days, perhaps, when I too am married, you and Comrade Coots will come and visit us in our little home.' You will receive a hearty, unaffected welcome. You must not be offended if, just before you say good-bye, we count the spoons. One would scarcely have supposed Miss Peavy a sensitive woman, yet at this remark an ominous frown clouded her white forehead. Her careless amiability seemed to wane. She raked Smith with a glittering eye. "'You're talking a damn lot,' she observed coldly. "'An old failing of mine.' said Smith apologetically, and one concerning which there have been numerous complaints. I see now that I have been boring you, and I hope that you will allow me to express— He broke off abruptly, not because he had reached the end of his remarks, but because at this moment there came from above their heads a sudden sharp cracking sound, and almost simultaneously a shower of plaster fell from the ceiling, followed by the startling appearance of a long, shapely leg— which remained waggling in space, and from somewhere out of sight there filtered down a sharp and agonized oath. 
Time and neglect had done their work with the flooring of the room, in which Smith had bestowed the Honourable Freddy Threepwood, and creeping cautiously about in the dark, he had had the misfortune to go through. But as so often happens in this life, the misfortune of one is the good fortune of another. Badly as the accident had shaken Freddy, from the point of view of Smith, it was almost ideal. The sudden appearance of a human leg through the ceiling, at a moment of nervous tension, is enough to unman the stoutest-hearted, and Edward Coots made no attempt to conceal his perturbation. Leaping a clear six inches from the floor, he jerked up his head and quite unintentionally pulled the trigger of his revolver. A bullet ripped through the plaster. The leg disappeared. Not for an instant since he had been shut in that upper room had Freddy Threepwood ceased to be mindful of Smith's parting statement that he would be shot if he tried to escape, and Mr. Coote's bullet seemed to him a dramatic fulfilment of that promise. Wrenching his leg with painful energy out of the abyss, he proceeded to execute a backward spring, which took him to the far wall, at which point, as it was impossible to get any farther away from the centre of events, he was compelled to halt his retreat. Having rolled himself up into as small a ball as he could manage, he sat where he was, trying not to breathe. His momentary intention of explaining through the hole that the entire thing had been a regrettable accident he prudently abandoned. Unintelligent, though he had often proved himself in other crises of his life, he had the sagacity now to realise that the neighbourhood of the hole was unhealthy and should be avoided. So, preserving a complete and unbroken silence, he crouched there in the darkness, only asking to be left alone. And it seemed, as the moments slipped by, that this modest wish was to be gratified. Noises and the sound of voices came up to him from the room below, but no more bullets. It would be paltering with the truth to say that this put him completely at his ease, but still it was something. Freddy's pulse began to return to the normal. Mr. Coots, on the other hand, was beating with a dangerous quickness. Swift and objectionable things had been happening to Edward Coots in that lower room. His first impression was that the rift in the plaster above him had been instantly followed by the collapse of the entire ceiling. But this was a mistaken idea. All that had occurred was that Smith, finding Mr. Coots's eye and pistol functioning in another direction, had sprung forward, snatched up a chair, hit the unfortunate man over the head with it, relieved him of his pistol, leaped to the mantelpiece, removed the revolver which lay there, and now, holding both weapons in an attitude of menace, was regarding him censoriously through a gleaming eyeglass. "'No funny business, Comrade Coots,' said Smith. Mr. Coots picked himself up painfully. His head was singing. He looked at the revolvers, blinked, opened his mouth, and shut it again. He was oppressed with a sense of defeat. Nature had not built him for a man of violence. Peaceful manipulation of a pack of cards in the smoke-room of an Atlantic liner— was a thing he understood and enjoyed. Rough-and-tumble encounters were alien to him, and distasteful. As far as Mr. Coots was concerned, the war was over. But Miss Peavy was a woman of spirit. Her hat was still in the ring. She clutched the necklace in a grasp of steel, and her fine eyes glared defiance. "'You think yourself smart, don't you?' she said. 
Smith eyed her commiseratingly. Her valorous attitude appealed to him. Nevertheless, business was business. I am afraid, he said regretfully, that I must trouble you to hand over that necklace. Try and get it, said Miss Peavy. Smith looked hurt. I am a child in these matters, he said. But I had always gathered that on these occasions the wishes of the man behind the gun were automatically respected. I'll call your bluff, said Miss Peavy firmly. I'm going to walk straight out of here with this collection of ice right now, and I'll bet you won't have the nerve to start any shooting. Shoot a woman? Not you. Smith nodded gravely. Your knowledge of psychology is absolutely correct. Your trust in my sense of chivalry rests on solid ground. But, he proceeded, cheering up, I fancy that I see a way out of the difficulty. An idea has been vouchsafed to me. I shall shoot, not you, but Comrade Coots. This will dispose of all unpleasantness. If you attempt to edge out through that door, I shall immediately proceed to plug Comrade Coots in the leg. At least I shall try. I am a poor shot, and may hit him in some more vital spot. But at least he will have the consolation of knowing that I did my best and meant well. Hey! said Mr. Coots, and never, in a life liberally embellished with this favourite ejaculation of his, had he uttered it more feelingly. He shot a feverish glance at Miss Peavy, and reading in her face indecision, rather than that instant acquiescence which he had hoped to see, cast off his customary attitude of respectful humility, and asserted himself. He was no caveman, but this was one occasion when he meant to have his own way. With an agonized bound, he reached Miss Peavy's side, wrenched the necklace from her grasp, and flung it into the enemy's camp. Eve stooped and picked it up. "'I thank you,' said Smith, with a brief bow in her direction. Miss Peavy breathed heavily. Her strong hands clenched and unclenched. Between her parted lips her teeth showed in a thin white line. Suddenly she swallowed quickly, as if draining a glass of unpalatable medicine. Well, she said in a low, even voice, that seems to be about all. Guess we'll be going. Come along, Ed. Pick up the Henrys. Coming, Liz replied Mr. Coots humbly. They passed together into the night. Silence followed their departure. Eve, weak with the reaction from the complex emotions which she had undergone since her arrival at the cottage, sat on the battered sofa, her chin resting in her hands. She looked at Smith, who, humming a light air, was delicately piling with the toe of his shoe a funeral mound over the second of the dead bats. "'So that's that,' she said. Smith looked up with a bright and friendly smile. "'You have a very happy gift of phrase,' he said. "'That, as you so sensibly say, is that.' Eve was silent for a while. Smith completed the obsequies and stepped back with the air of a man who has done what he can for a fallen friend. "'Fancy Miss Peavy being a thief,' said Eve. She was somehow feeling a disinclination to allow the conversation to die down, and yet she had an idea that, 
unless it was permitted to die down, it might become embarrassingly intimate. Subconsciously, she was endeavouring to analyse her views on this long, calm person, who had so recently added himself to the list of those who claimed to look upon her with affection. "'I confess it came as something of a shock to me also,' said Smith. "'In fact, the revelation that there was this other, deeper side to her nature materially altered the opinion I had formed of her. I found myself warming to Miss Peavy. Something that was akin to respect began to stir within me. Indeed, I almost wish that we had not been compelled to deprive her of the jewels. "'We?' said Eve. "'I'm afraid I didn't do much.' "'Your attitude was exactly right,' Smith assured her. "'You afforded just the moral support which a man needs in such a crisis.' Silence fell once more. Eve returned to her thoughts. And then, with a suddenness which surprised her, she found that she had made up her mind. "'So, you're going to be married?' she said. Smith polished his monocle thoughtfully. "'I think so,' he said. "'I think so. What do you think?' Eve regarded him steadfastly. Then she gave a little laugh. "'Yes,' she said. "'I think so, too.' She paused. "'Shall I tell you something? You could tell me nothing more wonderful than that. When I met Cynthia in Market Blandings, she told me what the trouble was which made her husband leave her. What do you suppose it was?' "'From my brief acquaintance with Comrade MacTodd, I would hazard the guess that he tried to stab her with a bread-knife. He struck me as a murderous-looking specimen.' They had some people to dinner, and there was chicken, and Cynthia gave all the giblets to the guests, and her husband bounded out of his seat with a wild cry, and shouting, You know I love those things better than anything in the world, rushed from the house never to return. Precisely how I would have wished him to rush, had I been Mrs. McTodd. Cynthia told me that he had rushed from the house never to return six times since they were married. May I mention— in passing, said Smith, that I do not like chicken giblets. Cynthia advised me, proceeded Eve, if ever I married, to marry someone eccentric. She said it was such fun. Well, I don't suppose I am ever likely to meet anyone more eccentric than you, am I? I think you would be unwise to wait on the chance. The only thing is, said Eve reflectively, Mrs. Smith— it doesn't sound much, does it? Smith beamed encouragingly. We must look into the future, he said. We must remember that I am only at the beginning of what I am convinced is to be a singularly illustrious career. Lady Smith is better. Baroness Smith, better still. And, who knows, the Duchess of Smith, the P being silent. Well, anyhow, said Eve, you were wonderful just now, simply wonderful. The way you made one spring— Your words, said Smith, are music to my ears. But we must not forget that the foundations of the success of the manoeuvre were laid by Comrade Threepwood. Had it not been for the timely incursion of his leg— Good gracious, cried Eve. Freddy, I had forgotten all about him. The right spirit, said Smith, quite the right spirit. We must go and let him out, just as you say and then he can come with us on the stroll I was about to propose, that we should take through the woods. 
"'It is a lovely night, and what could be jollier than to have Comrade Threepwood prattling at our side? I will go and let him out at once.' "'No, don't bother,' said Eve. Chapter 14 Smith Accepts Employment the golden stillness of a perfect summer morning brooded over Blanding's castle and its adjacent pleasure grounds. From a sky of unbroken blue the sun poured down its heartening rays on all those roses, pinks, pansies, carnations, hollyhocks, columbines, larkspurs, London pride, and Canterbury bells, which made the garden so rarely beautiful. Flannelled youths and maidens in white serge "'sported in the shade. "'Gay cries arose from the tennis-courts behind the shrubbery, "'and birds, bees, and butterflies "'went about their business with a new energy and zip. "'In short, the casual observer, "'assuming that he was addicted to trite phrases, "'would have said that happiness reigned supreme. "'But happiness, even on the finest mornings, "'is seldom universal. "'The strolling youths and maidens were happy,' The tennis players were happy. The birds, bees, and butterflies were happy. Eve, walking in pleasant meditation on the terrace, was happy. Freddy Threepwood was happy, as he lounged in the smoking-room and gloated over the information, received from Smith in the small hours, that his thousand pounds was safe. Mr. Keeble, writing to Phyllis to inform her that she might clinch the purchase of the Lincolnshire farm, was happy. Even head gardener Angus McAllister was as happy as a Scotsman can ever be. But Lord Emsworth, drooping out of the library window, felt only a nervous irritation more in keeping with the blizzards of winter than with the only fine July that England had known in the last ten years. We have seen his lordship in a similar attitude and a like frame of mind on a previous occasion but then his melancholy had been due to the loss of his glasses. This morning these were perched firmly on his nose, and he saw all things clearly. What was causing his gloom now was the fact that some ten minutes earlier his sister Constance had trapped him in the library, full of jarring rebuke on the subject of the dismissal of Rupert Baxter, the world's most efficient secretary. It was to avoid her compelling eye— that Lord Emsworth had turned to the window, and what he saw from that window thrust him even deeper into the abyss of gloom. The sun, the birds, the bees, the butterflies, and the flowers called to him to come out and have the time of his life, but he just lacked the nerve to make a dash for it. "'I think you must be mad,' said Lady Constance bitterly, resuming her remarks and starting at the point where she had begun before." "'Baxter's mad,' retorted his lordship, also retreading old ground. "'You are too absurd. He threw flower-pots at me. Do please stop talking about those flower-pots. Mr. Baxter has explained the whole thing to me, and surely even you can see that his behaviour was perfectly excusable. I don't like the fellow,' cried Lord Emsworth, once more retreating to his last line of trenches. "'the one line from which all Lady Constance's eloquence "'had been unable to dislodge him. "'There was a silence, as there had been a short while before, "'when the discussion had reached this same point. "'You will be helpless without him,' said Lady Constance. 
"'Nothing of the kind,' said his lordship. "'You know you will. "'Where will you ever get another secretary "'capable of looking after everything like Mr. Baxter? "'You know you are a perfect child, "'and unless you have someone whom you can trust to manage your affairs, "'I cannot see what will happen.' "'Lord Emsworth made no reply. "'He merely gazed wanly from the window. "'Chaos!' moaned Lady Constance. His lordship remained mute, but now there was a gleam of something approaching pleasure in his pale eyes, for at this moment a car rounded the corner of the house from the direction of the stables and stood purring at the door. There was a trunk on the car and a suitcase, and almost simultaneously the efficient Baxter entered the library, clothed and spattered for travel. "'I have come to say good-bye.' "'Lady Constance,' said Baxter, coldly and precisely, "'flashing in his late employer through his spectacles a look of stern reproach. "'The car which is taking me to the station is at the door.' "'Oh, Mr. Baxter!' "'Lady Constance, strong woman though she was, fluttered with distress. "'Oh, Mr. Baxter, good-bye.' "'He gripped her hand in brief farewell,' and directed his spectacles for another tense instant upon the sagging figure at the window. "'Good-bye, Lord Emsworth.' "'Eh, hey, what? Oh, ah, yes. Good-bye, my dear fellow. I mean, good-bye. I uh, hope you will have a pleasant journey.' "'Thank you,' said Baxter. "'But Mr. Baxter,' said Lady Constance, "'Lord Emsworth,' "'said the ex-secretary, icily. "'I am no longer in your employment.' "'But, Mr. Baxter,' moaned Lady Constance, "'surely, even now, misunderstanding, "'talk it all over quietly.' "'Lord Emsworth started violently. "'Here,' he protested, "'in much the same manner "'as that in which the recent Mr. Coots "'had been wont to say, "'Hey!' "'I fear it is too late,' said Baxter, to his infinite relief, "'to talk things over. "'My arrangements are already made and cannot be altered. "'Ever since I came here to work for Lord Emsworth, my former employer, "'an American millionaire named Jevons "'has been making me flattering offers to return to him. "'Until now... A mistaken sense of loyalty has kept me from accepting these offers, but this morning I telegraphed to Mr. Jevons to say that I was at liberty and could join him at once. It is too late now to cancel this promise. Quite, quite, oh, certainly quite, mustn't dream of it, my dear fellow. No, 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 indeed, no, said Lord Emsworth, with an effervescent cordiality which struck both his hearers as in the most dubious taste. Baxter merely stiffened haughtily, but Lady Constance was so poignantly affected by the words and the joyous tone in which they were uttered that she could endure her brother's loathly society no longer. Shaking Baxter's hand once more and gazing stonily for a moment at the worm by the window, she left the room. For some seconds after she had gone, there was silence a silence which Lord Emsworth found embarrassing. He turned to the window again, and took in with one wistful glance the roses, the pinks, the pansies, the carnations, the hollyhocks, the columbines, the larkspurs, 
the London Pride and the Canterbury Bells. And then suddenly there came to him the realisation that with Lady Constance gone, there no longer existed any reason why he should stay cooped up in this stuffy library on the finest morning that had ever been sent to gladden the heart of man. He shivered ecstatically from the top of his bald head to the soles of his roomy shoes, and bounding gleefully from the window, started to amble across the room. "'Lord Emsworth!' His lordship halted. His was a one-track mind, capable of accommodating only one thought at a time. If that. And he had almost forgotten that Baxter was still there. He eyed his late secretary peevishly. "'Yes, yes, is there anything?' I should like to speak to you for a moment. I have a most important conference with McAllister. I will not detain you long. Lord Emsworth, I am no longer in your employment, but I think it my duty to say before I go— No, no, my dear fellow, I quite understand. Quite, quite, quite. Constance has been going over all that. I know what you are trying to say. The matter of the flower-pots, please do not apologise. It is quite all right. I was startled at the time, I own, but— "'No doubt you had excellent motives. Let us forget the whole affair.' Baxter ground an impatient heel into the carpet. "'I had no intention of referring to the matter to which you allude,' he said. "'I merely wished—yes, yes, of course.' A vagrant breeze floated in at the window, languid with summer scents, and Lord Emsworth, sniffing, shuffled restlessly. "'Of course, of course, of course. Some other time, eh? Yes, yes, that will be capital. Capital! Cap—' The efficient Baxter uttered a sound that was partly a cry, partly a snort. Its quality was so arresting that Lord Emsworth paused, his fingers on the door-handle, and peered back at him startled. "'Very well,' said Baxter shortly. "'Pray do not let me keep you, if you are not interested in the fact that Blanding's castle is sheltering a criminal.' It is not easy to divert Lord Emsworth when in quest of Angus McAllister, but this remark succeeded in doing so. He let go of the door-handle, and came back a step or two into the room. "'Sheltering a criminal?' "'Yes,' Baxter glanced at his watch. "'I must go now, or I shall miss my train,' he said curtly. "'I was merely going to tell you that this fellow who calls himself Rolston McTodd is not Rolston McTodd at all.' "'Not Rolston McTodd?' repeated his lordship blankly. "'But—' He suddenly perceived a flaw in the argument. "'But he said he was,' he pointed out cleverly. "'Yes, I remember distinctly. He said he was McTodd. <laughs> he is an impostor.' and I imagine that, if you investigate, you will find that it is he and his accomplices who stole Lady Constance's necklace. But, my dear fellow— Baxter walked briskly to the door. You need not take my word for it, he said. What I say can easily be proved. Get this so-called McTodd to write his name on a piece of paper, and then compare it with the signature to the letter— which the real McTodd wrote in accepting Lady Constance's invitation to the castle. You will find it filed away in the drawer of that desk there. Lord Emsworth adjusted his glasses, and stared at the desk as if he expected it to do a conjuring trick. "'I will leave you to take what steps you please,' said Baxter. "'Now that I am no longer in your employment, the thing does not concern me one way or another.' 
but I thought you might be glad to hear the facts. Oh, I am, responded his lordship, still peering vaguely. Oh, I am. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Goodbye. But Baxter— Lord Emsworth trotted out onto the landing. But Baxter had got off to a good start, and was almost out of sight round the bend of the stairs. But, my dear fellow— bleated his lordship plaintively over the banisters. From below, out on the drive, came the sound of an automobile getting into gear and moving off, than which no sound is more final. The great door of the castle closed with a soft but significant bang, as doors close when handled by an untipped butler. Lord Emsworth returned to the library to wrestle with his problem unaided. He was greatly disturbed. Apart from the fact that he disliked criminals and impostors as a class, it was a shock to him to learn that the particular criminal and impostor, then in residence at Blandings, was the man for whom, brief as had been the duration of their acquaintance, he had conceived a warm affection. He was fond of Smith. Smith soothed him. If he had had to choose any member of his immediate circle for the role of criminal and impostor, he would have chosen Smith last. He went to the window again and looked out. There was the sunshine. There were the birds. There were the hollyhocks, carnations, and Canterbury bells, all present and correct. But now they failed to cheer him. He was wondering dismally what on earth he was going to do. What did one do with criminals and impostors? Had him arrested, he supposed. But he shrank from the thought of arresting Smith. It seemed so deuced unfriendly. He was still meditating gloomily, when a voice spoke behind him. "'Good morning. I am looking for Miss Halliday. You have not seen her by any chance? Ah, oh, there she is, down there on the terrace.' Lord Emsworth was aware of Smith beside him at the window, waving cordially to Eve, who waved back. "'I thought, possibly,' continued Smith, "'that Miss Halliday would be in her little room yonder.' He indicated the dummy bookshelves through which he had entered. But I am glad to see that the morning is so fine that she has given toil the missing balk. It is the right spirit, said Smith. I like to see it. Lord Emsworth peered at him nervously through his glasses. His embarrassment and his distaste for the task that lay before him increased as he scanned his companion in vain for those signs of villainy which all well-regulated criminals and impostors ought to exhibit to the eye of discernment. "'I am surprised to find you indoors,' said Smith, "'on so glorious a morning. I should have supposed that you would have been down there among the shrubs, taking a good sniff at a hollyhock or something.' Lord Emsworth braced himself for the ordeal. "'Um, my dear fellow, that is to say—' he paused— Smith was regarding him almost lovingly through his monocle, and it was becoming increasingly difficult to warm up to the work of denouncing him. "'You were observing?' said Smith. Lord Emsworth uttered curious buzzing noises. "'I have just parted from Baxter,' he said at length, deciding to approach the subject in a more roundabout fashion. "'Indeed,' said Smith courteously. "'Yes, Baxter—' "'Has gone. Forever? Er, uh, yes.' "'Splendid,' said Smith. 
Splendid, splendid. Lord Emsworth removed his glasses, twiddled them on their cord, and replaced them on his nose. He made... He... Uh, the fact is, he made... Before he went, Baxter made a most remarkable statement. A charge. Well, in short, he made a very strange statement about you. Smith nodded gravely. I had been expecting something of the kind, he said. He said, no doubt, that I was not really Ralston McTodd. His lordship's mouth opened feebly. Uh, yes, he said. I've been meaning to tell you about that, said Smith amiably. It is quite true. I am not Ralston McTodd. You, you admit it. I am proud of it. Lord Emsworth drew himself up. He endeavoured to assume the attitude of stern censure, which came so naturally to him in interviews with his son, Frederick. But he met Smith's eye and sagged again. Beneath the solemn friendliness of Smith's gaze, auteur was impossible. "'Then what the deuce are you doing here under his name?' he asked, placing his finger in statesmanlike fashion on the very nub of the problem. "'I mean to say,' he went on, making his meaning clearer, "'if you aren't McTodd, why did you come here saying you were McTodd?' Smith nodded slowly. "'The point is well taken.' he said. I was expecting you to ask that question. Primarily, I won't, no thanks, but primarily, I did it to save you embarrassment. Save me embarrassment? Precisely. When I came into the smoking-room of our mutual club that afternoon, when you had been entertaining Comrade McTodd at lunch, I found him on the point of passing out of your life forever. It seems that he had taken umbrage to some slight extent— "'because you had buzzed off to chat with the florist across the way, "'instead of remaining with him. "'And after we had exchanged a pleasant word or two, "'he legged it, leaving you short one modern poet. "'On your return I stepped into the breach "'to save you from the inconvenience "'of having to return here without a McTodd of any description. "'No one, of course, could have been more alive than myself to the fact "'that I was merely a poor substitute, "'a sort of synthetic McTodd.' "'but still I considered that I was better than nothing, so I came along.' "'His lordship digested this explanation in silence. "'Then he seized on a magnificent point. "'Are you a member of the Senior Conservative Club?' "'Most certainly.' "'Why, then, dash it!' cried his lordship, "'paying to that august stronghold of respectability "'as striking a tribute as it had ever received. "'If you're a member of the Senior Conservative—' "'You can't be a criminal. Baxter's an ass.' "'Exactly. Baxter would have had it that you had stolen my sister's necklace. "'I can assure you that I have not got Lady Constance's necklace.' "'Of course not! Of course not, my dear fellow. "'I'm only telling you what that idiot Baxter said. "'Thank goodness I've got rid of the fellow.' "'A cloud passed over his now sunny face.' "'Though confound it, Connie was right about one thing.' "'He relapsed into a somewhat moody silence. "'Yes?' said Smith. "'Eh?' said his lordship. "'You were saying that Lady Constance had been right about one thing?' "'Oh, yes. "'She was saying that I should have a hard time finding another secretary as capable as Baxter.' "'Smith permitted himself to bestow an encouraging pat 
on his host's shoulder. "'You have touched on a matter,' he said, "'which I had intended to broach to you at some convenient moment when you were at leisure. "'If you would care to accept my services, they are at your disposal.' "'Hey? The fact is,' said Smith, "'I am shortly about to be married.' "'and it is more or less imperative that I connect with some job "'which will ensure a moderate competence. "'Why should I not become your secretary? "'You want to be my secretary? "'You have unravelled my meaning exactly. "'But I've never had a married secretary. "'I think that you would find a steady married man "'an improvement on these wild flower-pot-throwing bachelors. "'If it would help to influence your decision,' I may say that my bride-to-be is Miss Halliday, probably the finest library cataloguist in the United Kingdom. Eh? Miss Halliday? That girl down there? No other, said Smith, waving fondly at Eve as she passed underneath the window. In fact, the same. But I like her, said Lord Emsworth, as if stating an insuperable objection. Excellent. She's a nice girl. I quite agree with you. "'Do you think you could really look after things here like Baxter? "'I am convinced of it. "'Oh, then, my dear fellow, well, really, I must say, "'I must say, well, I mean, why shouldn't you?' "'Precisely,' said Smith. "'You have put in a nutshell the very thing I have been trying to express. "'But have you had any experience as a secretary?' "'I must admit that I have not. "'You see, until recently, I was more or less one of the idle rich.' I toiled not, neither did I, except once, after a bump-supper at Cambridge, spin. My name, perhaps I ought to reveal to you, is Smith. The P is silent. And until very recently I lived in affluence, not far from the village of Much Middleford in this county. The name is probably unfamiliar to you, but you may have heard of the house, which was for many years the Smith headquarters, Corfby Hall. "'Lord Emsworth jerked his glasses off his nose. "'Corfby Hall? "'Are you the son of the smith who used to own Corfby Hall? "'Why, bless my soul, I knew your father well. "'Really? Yes. "'That is to say, I never met him. "'No, but I won the first prize for roses at the Shrewsbury Flower Show "'the year he won the prize for tulips.' "'It seems to draw us very close together,' said Smith. "'Why, my dear boy!' cried Lord Emsworth jubilantly. "'If you are really looking for a position of some kind "'and would care to be my secretary, "'nothing could suit me better. "'Nothing, nothing, nothing. "'Why, bless my soul! "'I am extremely obliged,' said Smith. "'And I shall endeavour to give satisfaction. "'And surely—' If a mere Baxter could hold down the job, it should be well within the scope of a Shropshire Smith. I think so. I think so. And now, if you will excuse me, I think I will go down and tell the glad news to the little woman, if I may so describe her. Smith made his way down the broad staircase at an even better pace than that recently achieved by the departing Baxter, for he rightly considered each moment of this excellent day wasted there was not spent in the company of Eve. He crooned blithely to himself as he passed through the hall, only pausing when, as he passed the door of the smoking-room, the Honourable Freddy Threepwood suddenly emerged. "'Oh, I say,' said Freddy, "'just the fellow I wanted to see. I was going off to look for you.' 
Freddy's tone was cordiality itself. As far as Freddy was concerned, all that had passed between them in the cottage in the West Wood last night was forgiven and forgotten. "'Say on, Comrade Threepwood,' replied Smith. "'And if I may offer the suggestion, make it snappy, for I would be elsewhere. I have man's work before me. Come over here.' Freddy drew him into a far corner of the hall and lowered his voice to a whisper. "'I say, it's all right, you know.' "'Excellent,' said Smith. "'Splendid! This is great news. What is all right?' "'I've just seen Uncle Joe. "'He's going to cough up the money he promised me. "'I congratulate you. "'So now I shall be able to get into that bookie's business "'and make a pile. "'And I say, you remember me telling you about Miss Halliday? "'What was that? "'Why, that I loved her, I mean, and all that. "'Ah, yes. Well, "'Look here, between ourselves,' said Freddy earnestly, "'the whole trouble all along has been that she thought I hadn't any money to get married on. She didn't actually say so in so many words, but you know how it is with women. You can read between the lines, if you know what I mean. So now everything's going to be all right. I shall simply go to her and say, Well, what about it? And, well, and so on, don't you know? Smith considered the point gravely. I see your reasoning, Comrade Threepwood, he said. I can detect but one flaw in it. Flaw? What flaw? "'the fact that Miss Halliday is going to marry me.' "'The Honourable Freddy's jaw dropped. "'His prominent eyes became more prawn-like. "'What?' "'Smith patted his shoulder commiseratingly. "'Be a man, Comrade Threepwood, and bite the bullet. "'These things will happen to the best of us. "'Some day you will be thankful that this has occurred. "'Purged in the holocaust of a mighty love, "'you will wander out into the sunset a finer, "'Broader man. "'And now I must reluctantly tear myself away. "'I have an important appointment.' "'He patted his shoulder once more. "'If you would care to be a page at the wedding, Comrade Threepwood, "'I can honestly say that there is no one "'whom I would rather have in that capacity.' "'And with a stately gesture of farewell, "'Smith passed out onto the terrace to join Eve.' This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Leave It to Smith, The P is Silent, Part 10 of 10, by P.G. Woodhouse. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and go to the Home from School free category. You can pick up nearly $100 worth of free audiobooks. Please take advantage of this, and hopefully it will help you out during the pandemic. And if you have any friends or family who might also benefit from them, please tell them as well. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time for your weekly dose of literary nourishment. <laughs>